As we read through this chapter, I can't help but think of the fact that there have been times in my life and maybe in our lives when we've been influenced by the example of another believer. Maybe you've been encouraged, maybe you've been, been convicted, and maybe there's been things to learn as you observed other believers. I know as a young man there were, were godly uh, men in the church whose example I looked up to when it came to parenting and leading and so on. And, so, and, and, and one of the purposes that God has built into the local church family is that blessing and the power of the influence of the fellowship of the saints. It's, it's integral to the church family, isn't it? The privilege we have of encouraging one another in love and edifying and lifting up each other in regards to Jesus Christ. And it's when Christ is real in our lives, when Jesus is real to us, when we're joining him, that we rub off each, on each other in a way that points each other to the Savior. And that is so, so important. It is an important part of our Christian walk and growth in Christ. It's normal to be encouraged and, or even sometimes challenged or maybe even convicted in the testimony of another brother or sister in Christ. You know, and, and at those times, we need to thank the Lord that he's communing, communicating to us in that way, that he's using that brother or sister in Christ to, to encourage us, to lift us up, or maybe to convict us in our lives. Too often our response in those things, especially if it's a, it's a behavior that convicts, convicts us, too often we, we find an excuse to shrug off the things that we see in another person. We, we recall a past failure or inconsistency, and we think, oh, we don't have to pay attention to that person, and forget that we have a sovereign God who is sovereign over our circumstances and, and only allows things in our lives that are meant for us to pay attention to and, and to see if the shoe fits, so to speak, in those situations. Because the Bible repeatedly, over and over again, especially in the New Testament, refers to the edification of the saints, that we're to edify one another in love. And so we need to recognize God's hand often in the example of other believers and be thankful for them to see what they can teach us and what God is trying to teach me in those events. And I mention that this morning because before us here in, in the book Philippians chapter 1, we have just that. We have lessons by way of example. We have the Apostle Paul giving his testimony of what it was like to be in prison for Christ, and he's left for us a tremendous example in the lessons we've learned in the last few weeks. We've seen in this section things that God is meant to instruct us, to encourage us, or to convict us in. We've seen Paul's vision. It didn't matter if he was in prison. He was happy Christ was preached. We've seen Paul's joy, that people were being reached despite the circumstances he was going through. We saw, we saw in this passage Paul's passion, a desire that Christ would be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. We also saw, saw Paul's occupation in life, where he said in that tremendous statement, for to me, to live is Christ. We also see Paul's priority in life, to be used of God in serving others. And we touched on that last time slightly, where Paul says in the end of this section, then verse 25 and 26, he's being confident that I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant. And Paul's priority was to be used of God in ministering to others. And then we also see Paul's hope in life and to be with Christ, which is far better. And so we saw a lot of lessons, and these are just some of the ones that we've seen by way of example. And it's not that, you know, we often put Paul on a pedestal, and he was a lead apostle, but he was another human who had a sin nature, who had his failures and shortcomings, who was growing in his faith, and God wanted to use his example 
so much to the point that he included it in Scripture for you and I to be instructed in and to be challenged by. Well, that changes in the next section, because in the next section, in the book of Philippians, Paul throws down the gauntlet. He says, well, what about you? And he challenges the Philippian believers, and God, by way of putting in the Scriptures, challenges you and I, what about our relationship to these things? What about our participation in the work of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, which is the theme of this passage? And he says that because he ends this passage, and I don't always like to start at the end, but the point he mentions in verse 30 is that you have the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. He says you're in the same battle. You're in the same conflict. You have the same mission. You have the same great commission, if I can put it that way, you, you, you're, you know, he didn't say this is not a volunteer duty. As Christians, we are soldiers of the cross. Now, we might be ineffective soldiers. We might be AWOL soldiers. But none, nonetheless, because we're children of the king, we represent him. Because Christ lives in us, we are to present him. We are in the same conflict as he is in. And so when we read this section, and maybe when the, tr the church at Philippi read this book, this letter, they're thinking, oh boy, that's a special thing that happens to those missionaries that really stick their neck out for Christ. And Paul's saying, no, we're in this together. You're, you're part of this just as much as I am, he is saying. And that's why he challenges them in his very convicting and pointed verse, verses, where he starts in verse 27 and says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In regards to striving together for the faith of the gospel, he says, let your conduct be worthy. We've seen this word worthy before in Scripture, haven't we? And Paul here is concerned that these that Christians, you and I today as well, have a walk that is worthy of the gospel. Interesting way to put it, isn't it? And maybe that's consistent with what he's just presented to us in the last section when he talked about not being ashamed or bring shame to the person of Christ, to live with boldness, openly living and proclaiming Christ, that Christ would be magnified in his body. And maybe that's what he's referring to in regards to a worthy walk. Paul described in his life what maybe was what complemented the cross of Christ. And he said here, your conduct, your manner of life, your behavior, some of your versions might say, needs to complement, needs to be worthy of the gospel. And that's what he's saying now. This, this is my testimony. Now it's your turn. Stand up and give your testimony. What is God doing in and through you? What is your passion? What is your desire? What is your joy? Is your life worthy of the gospel of Christ? And it's quite a challenge that brings conviction to all of us, doesn't it? And so what he's saying is these desires, these, these, this persecution I am under is normal. Now, the word worthy has been mentioned before in the scriptures. In Colossians 1.10, it says that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Ephesians 4.1 says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It's interesting that all three of these solicitations to a worthy walk were all written from prison. These are all prison epistles. They were all written from prison. And Paul challenges the, the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, and the church at Colossae to walk worthy of the gospel, to participate. In one, it's walking worthy of the Lord. In Ephesians 4, it's walking worthy of our calling as Christians. And here in Philippians, it's walking worthy of the gospel. So what does it mean to walk worthy? Well, how can we wrap our minds around this? Well, one commentary said that this 
in this passage, the walk he's referring to here, walking worthy, is a political term that really literally means live as citizens. Live as citizens. In other words, walk worthy of your heavenly home country as citizens of heaven. And when you think about that, you can't help but think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, which refers to the fact that we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what Paul says. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are here represent, on this earth representing our homeland. Because remember, you know, we sing the song, this world's not my home, I'm just passing through. Well, we're not just passing through. While we're here, while we're passing through, we have a mission. It's called being an ambassador for Christ. We represent our homeland, our king, our savior to this, un, to this lost and dying world here. And so this passage, along with that passage, tells us then that we should live in a way that brings honor to our homeland that cause, would cause people to respect and develop the healthy awe of God. That's what it means to walk worthy. When people see you, that God is magnified. That's the previous passage, isn't it? That God is seen clearly and respected. I just read a verse this morning. It came across this morning in Psalm 33. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. That should be our desires. And here Paul's saying it's your walk that should help Facilitate that. Should help develop that in people. In awe for God. Now it's not something we do on our own. We knew that it's something that we only can, only can be accomplished by the power of the Spirit. If you try to crank out a worthy walk, we turn into legalists. But if we walk in the power of God, we are empowered to reflect Christ, aren't we? Because the Spirit of God teaches us the Bible, the principles of Christ, the person of Christ, the dynamics of Christ. And, and then he leads us to empower and live out the word. And so you might say, how can I live a, walk a worthy walk? It takes decision, purpose, determination, but not self-reliance. It takes determination and the willingness to listen to the Spirit of God when he teaches us the Bible, when he convicts us, when he instructs us, when he reproves us and teaches us the word. We say, thank you. I needed that. That's right, God, I'm wrong. And we begin to he begins to change our thinking and then as he takes that word we've learned and applies it to shoe leather in our lives, we submit, we yield as we depend upon him. So a worthy walk is a byproduct, not just a brief summary, of our response to the Spirit of God who produces holiness in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is holiness. If you want to summarize those things. And that is a worthy walk of God. Now here in this context, we look back, for example. I mentioned that already. We saw what a worthy walk was in Paul as he looks back to the, to the previous verses in which he wants to not be ashamed, when he, doesn't, when he wants to live openly, where he desires that Christ be magnified. That's, that's a desire that is at the root of, of producing a worthy walk in our lives. You know, and Jesus is not magnified in our bodies when we consider ourselves first, is he? That's kind of a obvious, that's something we forget quickly. When we put ourselves first, that's what happens is we often compromise in our beliefs, in our convictions, and we stumble others from coming to Christ when we want what I want. And we make decisions in daily life. When there's that moment in time when someone is, invites you to a behavior that may or may not be right, the question is who's first? It's that simple, isn't it? That's where the lock of faith comes in. Do I want to make the right decision that can, that can bring people in awe of God? that can prevent me from stumbling a person from coming to know God, or I just want what I want, and I have the liberty and my freedom and my rights to do what I want. That's not 
what it means to walk worthy. That's not putting Christ first. That's not seeking that Christ to be magnified in my body. But looking forward here in the context, he goes on to say, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he gives us a hint in the next phrase that he, when he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. That's not the only place Paul talks about serving when no one's looking. And that's what he's saying here. Whether I'm there or whether I'm not, I may hear of your affairs and you're, you're, and you're moving on for Christ. He's talking about here sincerity, isn't he? First of all. One thing about a worthy walk is the sincerity of life and heart. And this reaches beyond Sunday go to meeting Christians to the reality of a, of, a of a developing and blossoming love for Jesus Christ. Like we love him because he first loved us. And as we learn of him, our response is to love him and appreciate him. And what he's saying here in this regard, he says, I want you to be real Christians. I want you to be sincere. Uh, and that only arises from a real heart commitment to Christ, which again, pointing back, is saying along with Paul, for to me, to live is Christ. Period. Not some of the time, part of the time, when it's convenient to my schedule, it's for me to live. Last and so life is Christ. And so the first thing he says a worthy walk may look like, because he describes it in this passage, is that sincerity, the reality of a pursuit of Jesus Christ and saying, really, Lord, I'm yours. Lead me according to your will. And that's what it means to live a Christ-centered, gospel-focused life. Now, he mentions here as well, and I just mentioned this as we, go as we pass, that I may hear of your affairs, and that's in the plural. And I think this challenge that's offered in this passage is to the church corporate. It's to the church family. Paul is concerned that this church would be active in the, in the forwarding of the gospel in serving Christ. Now, of course, if a church is moving forward, it requires individual response. So you've got that dual application in a sense, does, do we not? Because the church is made up of individuals. And it's, it's the individual of the church, individuals of the local church that determine the temperature and the climate and the fervency of the church. And so the ch while the, ch well the challenges of the corporate church, obviously the application is to you and I individually in regards to the sincerity of our faith in our life in serving Christ. And he goes on to say, first of all, he says that, that you may stand fast in one spirit. You know, that which unites the church is Jesus Christ. It's not a community, it's not a building, it's not a name. It's a person, isn't it? It's, it's our oneness in Christ that unites the church. And therefore, when the, when the children of God, when the family of God, when brothers and sisters in Christ gather, it ought to be that we please, honor, and follow, and promote him. And that's really multiplied when that becomes a reality and intensified when it's lived out in the family setting of the local church. It is one way we can edify each other in regards to that purpose, having that spirit, that purpose, that mind, to want to fulfill the purposes of God in our lives, and especially our corporate life. I was reminded of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. says, let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And what he's saying here is you see the day approaching, the day of Christ, the end times. We, you know, we like to think we're in the end times, and we sure hope so. But as you see the day approaching, it's even more. There should be an intensity and a fervency of, of fellowship within the church. I like the fact that he starts out this verse 
And he says, let us consider one another, and you have to be together to consider one another, in order to stir up. No, it doesn't end there. It's not just to stir people up. That's the easy thing to do. In fact, that's sometimes the natural thing to do, unfortunately. But to stir up to love and good works. That's our ministry. That's one of the purposes of the church, to stir us up to love and good works. That's the effect of fellowship and rubbing off on one another, and that's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But we exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And that's what it means to be together of one mind, of one purpose, one purpose to, to, to fulfill the Great Commission, if you, if, you, if you please. And he qualifies this with the word stand fast, standing fast in one spirit and one mind. That's corporate determination. And that means, Paul says, your church should have a reputation of standing fast in their commitment to gospel ministry. And that doesn't happen just from the leadership down. That, that needs, to be needs to exist in leadership, absolutely. But it needs to go from the bottom up as well. It's a corporate call. It's a corporate commitment. I know how many of you know the game of soccer. You know, soccer can be a boring game to watch, many think. But I think there's an interesting facet of soccer that I think is kind of insane. And if you understand the game of soccer, when, when there's a penalty, when someone gets called for a penalty, it often involves a penalty kick. Now, that penalty kick is anywhere near the goal. The other team, the defensive team, needs to want to protect their goal. And so one thing they do is they line up five or six guys or gals, whoever's playing, between the, the, the penalty kick, the kicker, and the goalie. And they lock arms. So they stand locked arm in arm. They have to be 10, 10 yards away, about from me to the middle of the auditorium, here 10 yards away is the closest they can get. And they stand there waiting for some guy to launch a ballistic missile and break their nose. Hit them right in the face. It's just insane. Because you can't use your hands in soccer. You can't put your hands up to defend yourself. So they lock arm in arm and they stand there facing the ball waiting for some guy just to blast them in the face. Now the kicker wants to go over them or around them, but it's crazy. And, you know, I just watched my grandsons play the other day and I watched that and I think, you know, some of these guys can really launch that ball. And I don't know if you've ever been hit in face by a hard kick soccer ball, but it can take you right off your feet. Well, that's commitment. That's wanting to win, isn't it? That's competition. Well, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Is the church should be locked arm in arm, standing against the affairs of this world, against the on onslaught of the devil, against false truths and false teaching and the determination to win that is to be used of God together in effectiveness serving Christ. Because we're here to reach a confused and broken world. And it takes that kind of determination. And the wonderful thing about t being together is, is the locking of arms and the fellowship of the saints in that purpose. Stand fast in that purpose and their determination. He also says one mind, which brings us to a unity of focus, of thinking alike. Not that we think identically. That's different. And that's not what God's teaching to desire. We're individuals. But he wants us to think alike, like the mind we're to have the mind of Christ, as we'll see in the next chapter. And we're to be focused on the things of Christ. So these things kind of go together. One spirit, that means we have an inner determination to be used of God, and we have one focus, and that's the purposes of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I just want you to consider this this morning because what we find in in the book of 1 Corinthians is a church that Paul called carnal. They were believers. It's obvious from the beginning of the first chapter. 
that they were sanctified in Christ, that God had, had, had saved them. But there was a church that was in turmoil, in division, in, in, they, in embracing error in practices and in beliefs. And he's concerned about their testimony, about their effectiveness for Christ. And he appeals in verse 10, in the middle of this passage, first chapter, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you will all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so he starts with their salvation, with their standing in Christ, when he says, I, I appeal to you, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because that is the unifying effect in our lives. In order for churches to remain effective for Christ, it has to avoid distractions. And those distractions often come in the way of false teaching or lame practices, you might say. And, and this church were believers. They were embroiled in conflict. And he says in verse 17 and 18, the focus should be the gospel. Paul says, I'm here to preach the gospel. That should be our focus. Because it's the preaching of the cross that is the power of God, it tells us in verse 18. And what's interesting is then he addresses, in verses 19 through 25, the wisdom of men. You know, the wisdom of God is up here, the wisdom of men is down here, and God's made it foolish through preaching. He reminds them, in light of that, in verses 26 through 28 of this chapter, the fact that God has called the foolish, the unlearned, he called the weak, and so on, because it is those whose dependence is upon God rather than upon themselves. He points themselves to a God dependency. And then he makes the point at the end of the chapter here where he tells them that in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And what he's saying in these last verses is that in this, in this contrast, is that the believers are only to be glorying in the Lord. And I think really, and you wonder how these two things fit in context. In the middle of the chapter, talking about them, them being embroiled in conflict, which he gets back to later, and then referring to this passage on wisdom, it's because it is often pride in the church, the pride of man, that is the source of conflict. And he's telling him, I said, that's dangerous. It's, 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 it contradicts the wisdom of God. And he tells at the end of the chapter, he says, the glory, rejoice in the wisdom of God. He who glories, in verse 31, let him glory in the Lord. You see, it's when, it's, when I hear it's my opinions, my ideas, my agenda, my way of doing things, that man's wisdom, that is against the wisdom of God. And that's why we recognize as a church that Jesus Christ is the head of this church, and we pursue him because the only thing that suppresses the flesh and its self-promotion in the fellowship of the saints is Jesus Christ. That's why he appeals to that in verse 10 in regards to our standing in Christ, being one mind in Christ, and he encourages at the end of the chapter to glory in the Lord. And when we seek Jesus Christ first, we seek his mind, pursue his will, and we seek to live as gospel purposes for me. And that's why Philippians 1.27 says, have the same mind. Because we find, if you go back to Philippians, there was a little conflict going on in this book, which we'll get to eventually. As we get to chapter 4, we find there was a couple ladies that weren't going along, and who knows how far that, that conflict reached into the congregation. 
And that's why throughout this book, we see in this wonderful book of joy, the, the, the encouragement to have one mind. Have the same mind. Rather than my way, let's have God's way and pursue that together. And what a delightful thing it is to be able to, to pursue Jesus Christ together. And it's having the mind of Jesus that unifies the local church and fulfilling the Great Commission. And that's the point here. But he goes on to say, not only to have one spirit, that, that determination, that one mind, that one sense of purpose of the pursuit of the will of God, the purposes of God in our lives, in our congregation. But then he uses the word striving, striving together for the faith of the gospel. One version uses the word contending. That word in the Bible is also translated laboring. The word striving kind of includes both. It includes laboring. It includes contending. And what he's telling the Philippians believer here is to be engaged in the battle. Be engaged in that conflict. He ends the chapter on that note. We're in the conflict to get engaged with it. You are a Christian. God called you to be ambassador. Be, be in, get in the battle. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes focus. It takes sacrifice. But that's the objective that God has for the local church. And while, yes, the local church's primary responsibility is to preach the word so the saints could be equipped as they speak the truth in love so that we can grow up into him, we also serve and edify one another. That's part of the, our growth in Christ, but it's for a purpose. It's so that we can impact the world for Christ. That's what God wants. You may have heard this before, but I've heard this several times over recent years as People bemoan the way the state of the church in America. He said they're afraid that the culture has changed the church rather than the church changing the culture. And that's what happens when we accommodate the world in our lives and in our churches. And, God, and Paul's saying here, no, no, no. Be of one spirit, one determination, and one mind to strive for the faith of the gospel. And it's something that we can do together. Locked arm in arm, we can impact the world for Jesus Christ. And that's why it's not just the job of the pastor or a visitation pastor, if you happen to have a church large enough. This is all inclusive, isn't it? This is to all of us. To be, in, to be involved in the battle for souls and in, in, in our des desire to reach the lost. And we come together to learn and to encourage and lift one another up so that we can go out and reach our friends and neighbors for Jesus Christ so they can be bold in our witness and concerned in, in our love for them as we reflect the love of Christ. And so that outreach may involve our own personal contacts, but we pray together. That's why we meet Wednesday nights to pray so we can come and say, hey, I got this, this, this relative, this friend, this neighbor, this associate, this coworker, this whatever, pray for them. I got to share a testimony with them, a gospel tract with them, a verse with them. We pray because that's our objective. We're in a battle. This is a war zone that we're living in. And it's quite different from the contemporary Christian view of the church that God has saved us all to make us just kind of float around like we're living in a rose garden. No, we're living in a war, war zone. And we need to pray and uphold one another to fellowship together so that we can pray for whether it's our individual context or our organized outreaches. But it's a joy to do this together. That's the joy of it. We're strengthened when we serve together. We're striving together. It helps us to remember, remember that the local church is not a community club, but a mission station. He tells us here to strive together for the faith of the gospel. 
Now that term faith of the gospel really represents the whole body of truth in regards to Jesus Christ. The good news concerning Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. A message of truth that not only brings salvation, but sets people free in life. Brings stability to life. Brings direction and purpose to life. And ultimately, glory to God. So the passage is telling us here that we're to enjoy in our conduct a walk with Jesus Christ that will produce a worthiness of the gospel. But with that, we are to be engaged in a battle for souls. We're to contend for the truth that will set people free, and we get to do this together. That's exciting. Exciting to be part of a church family that, that has a dynamic of a desire to reach souls for Christ. And then Paul goes on to tell us, in that work, don't be intimidated by persecution. Verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Don't be intimidated. Don't be chased off, distracted from your mission. You see, on one hand, it's internal conflict that can derail the cause of Christ, and there's also here external persecution that can derail the cause of Christ when we put our tail between our legs and become shy in our witness. Really, this may be reaching back to Paul's testimony in the previous verses where he says, I want to live boldly for the gospel. Not intimidated. Not thinking that, you know, I'm the odd duck or the different person. In reality, before God, the unsaved who are disregarding the word of God, they're the odd ducks. They're the ugly ducklings, so to speak. If I can put that in a in the right context, because they're out of step with the Creator. They're walking in darkness. We're the ones that are walking in the right, if you're following Christ, that is. And so, don't be afraid to live boldly. Don't be afraid of your persecution. You think, Paul, you're in prison when you said this. He could, he, he could have been facing a death sentence. He was convinced he was going to be released. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And 1 Peter has something to say about this topic of standing faithful and firm in face of adversity and persecution and opposition. First Peter chapter 3. We'll start with verse 14. We're going to notice what he says here. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Interesting. We don't always see it that way, but if you suffer for the sake of standing for righteousness, living righteously, doing the right, the right thing, you're blessed. Don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled, but instead sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an, a defense to everyone who adds, asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know, if you ever played football, you recognize if you line up across the line from someone, you don't expect them to hit you as hard as they did. Instead of running to mommy and crying, the coach would just say, well, next time hit them harder. Get determined. Do with all your might. I think that's what Peter's saying here. If you get opposed, just stand more firm. You're in the conflict. Become determined. Be ready to give them an answer. Go home and look up those verses that you couldn't remember, those answers that you didn't have, the things that maybe made you stumble over your tongue and think, well, well I'm not sure, but, you know, and go back and, and be ready. Get prepared. Get those answers and be ready to stand firm. Don't back down. 
Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conscience in Christ may be ashamed. And there's going to come a day when those who persecute you and oppose you are going to stand before God and be ashamed for their persecuting the one who, who brought the love of Christ to them. Jump over to chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are a reproach for the name of Christ, blessed are you. There it is again. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Encouraging verses. Now, it's not maybe the lifestyle that we may always want to sign up for. But there is great reward. It says you're blessed when you're willing to live your faith determinedly, openly, with those who, uh, to the result of persecution that might come your way. And going back to Philippians, it tells us here that that boldness, that strength you get from the Lord to stand as he upholds you and you're strong in the Lord and the power of his might as you stand for the truth of the gospel, he said, is to them a proof of destruction. That's what the word perdition means if you have a New King James. To them it's a proof of, of destruction. But to you it's salvation. That's, and that's from God. What he says, it's a proof of the reality. It proves there's something real. When Christians fold under persecution, it just helps the lost realize, see, that Christianity is just a phony crutch anyway. But when people Christians stand, the Bible says right here, it's a proof to them of their coming destruction. And that when you tell them that, that those who do not believe in Jesus Christ will be someday cast in a lake of fire, your life becomes a backdrop. If you stand firm for Christ, that's what he's saying here. When you stand firm, when you together as a, as a local church stand together for the faith of the gospel, it becomes proof to them that there's a reality that they don't know about, that they don't have, that they have maybe seen in other places. There's a reality because you're standing firm for something that is real and true and that the strength to stand comes from one place. It comes from God himself. And the Bible says that convinces the lost of their destruction. It also encourages our hearts in the evidence of the reality that God can make us stand because we know we're in the right. And we know God is for us. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Reminding me of a verse here where the where, where same thing is said in a different way. 2 Corinthians 2, if you want to follow along, verse 14 says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. There's that idea of living openly, victoriously, triumphantly in the power of God. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. And here our testimony is called to the, is, is, excuse me, compared to a sweet-smelling fragrance. And he diffuses the fragrance of his person through us, whether it's by life or by lip. And verse 15 goes on to say, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one where this aroma of death leading to death and the other the aroma of life leading to life and who is sufficient for these things. Well, he tells us over in verse 5, chapter, chapter 3, verse 5, that our sufficiency is from God. 
Well, they're all my price. And when our life is real, when we are saying, for to me to live is Christ, when we have this desire to, not, to, to walk worthy and not be ashamed of the gospel or bring shame to our Savior, we want Christ to be magnified in our bodies. When Christ is real in us, leading us in triumph, we smell good. And it brings a message to the world around us that Christianity is real, God exists, and their condemnation is sure. That's what, going back to Philippians, that's what it says. It's a proof of destruction. It's a proof that the Bible is true because it's real in our lives. You can see what a vital place God has privileged us with in regards to accomplishing his work here to win the loss of Christ. And going back to Philippians, he says that this determination that ought to be true is simply based on our calling. For in verse 29, it says, For it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know, the first phase of salvation is coming to Christ as Savior, believing that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again. When we put our trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, we are forgiven. In him, Ephesians 1.7 says, we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And we receive that free gift of forgiveness and the assurance of eternal life when we put our faith in him. And it's something that's been given to us. It's a free gift. It's given to us not only to believe on him, but then in phase two is salvation in the Christian life. What goes along with that is to suffer for his sake. But what's interesting here is that in both cases, these are granted. It's stated as a privilege to suffer for his sake. That's what Peter said. You're blessed. Remember the first persecutions in the early church? In Acts 5.41, the, the, the early believers said this, after one wave of persecution. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I don't know if Christians, if we have that perspective today. Because we lose sight of our vision. Why we're here. Ultimate reason for breathing air is to promote the love of Christ to a world that was so needy. The scriptures in these passages describe it as an honor to be so used of the Lord that when others see Jesus in me or hear Jesus through me, when I stand fast in the, my convictions that God has taught me, and persecution arise and opposition comes and we find ourselves strengthened in the Lord to be faithful to him. It's an honor to be so used of our Savior that, that God could actually use my mouth and my life to bring, bring instruction and conviction to someone else's life because that's what they need to come to Christ. Now they may not all respond but it's an honor to be used in such a way. And persecution is proof of that. The opposition is proof of that. And so the Bible is saying, don't be afraid. When the, when the lion gets backed into the corner and comes out with, with teeth and claws showing, that just means they got it. That means they saw it. That means God did use you to express in some way some measure of truth. Now, hopefully they don't come out because you personally offended them. Let's lay that aside. But it's when the truth of the gospel brings a reaction. And some people, unfortunately, react that way. They have a natural animosity towards God. And when we point, when we point out 
the fact that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we give them that alternative, that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, some people react, and, the, and, and history is full of persecution. In fact, the present is full of persecution around the world this morning of Christians because the people have that kind of hatred for God. And when it arises in your life, and it should not be an exception, what we're seeing in these passages, it's a privilege. We so often worry about offending our friends and neighbors. And it's not that we want to be offensive, but never, never, never let it cause us to back down from striving together for the faith of the gospel. Because it's that reality that you share with others, whether it's welcome or not sometimes, that convinces them that Christ is real, destruction is sure, but that there's an escape plan that God has provided, the way of the cross, so that they could have eternal life. So really in this chapter, in this last half of this chapter, we've seen two basic challenges. The first, the obvious, is for to me to live is Christ. That essence of the Christian life where Christ is our all in all. And the second then is we, if, we, if we live with Christ, then let's be engaged with Christ in the battle for souls. And that passage in Acts 5 where it mentions that they rejoice that they could be, be counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. The next verse says this, and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't turn tail and run. They didn't cease. It strengthened them. Their determination to share Jesus Christ to a world who are so needy. We look at all the problems around us in the world today, whether it's local, national, or, or worldwide, and there's one answer, and that is the truth that sets us free. And that truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I have been privileged to carry it, to stand for it, and to live it. And it's God's admonition to us. We've seen it by way of example in the first half of Philippians chapter 1. In this passage, Paul throws down that gauntlet. What about you? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have not only granted to us the gift of salvation freely when we trust Christ as Savior, Father, but you privileged us to be your ambassadors to represent you here, which normally will result in some forms of persecution and opposition. Father, thank you that we can be privileged with that, with that participation to actually make a difference in people's lives, to actually encourage others in the faith, to actually to, to share the good news message that will bring people to faith in Christ. And Father, may our lives walk be, a, be worthy of the gospel. And so Father, take these things we've studied, we've seen by way of example, by way of direct challenge, instruction. May we take it to heart this morning for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.